Hi, this is Steve Sleeper, producer of the North Omaha History Podcast. It's a volunteer effort, but you can help us meet expenses by becoming a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Go to patreon.com slash Omaha. The list of patrons and the link to Patreon is in the show notes. You can also help by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Thanks. Welcome to the North Omaha History Podcast with noted author and historian Adam Fletcher Sassy. Each week, Adam takes you on a guided tour through Omaha's dynamic past. Injustice in Omaha has deep roots like the 1917 story of an extreme white supremacist in Florence who probably murdered his first wife and framed a man for that murder. Afterwards, he started a riot, got another man lynched, almost murdered his second wife, and kept his successful Omaha real estate business the whole time. So, Adam, tell me, what happened in the case of Larkin McLeod? The circus train was rolling in from Lamar's, Iowa, on an August afternoon when an African-American man hopped off the train. He left the circus. He was done with it. This guy, he was called Charlie Smith. He was a semi-professional wrestler across the South all through the 1910s. He'd started wrestling way back in 1906 and just kept wailing at it. They called him the Cannonball. They called him the Thunderbolt. And... uh Thunderbolt Charlie Smith hopped off the train in Omaha, and he was going to find a new life, a new way to go. He started meandering north, Steve. He would have gotten off of the train down south in downtown. And he started meandering north along the railroad tracks, ended up getting up to the Florence neighborhood along the Omaha Road. When he got there, he was hot. It was August, August 17th. It was a hot day. And uh, Charlie Smith, he needed some water. He kept walking. He he saw a farm on the left side of the railroad tracks, on the west side of the railroad tracks, just north of present-day McKinley Street up in Florence. Larkin, I'm sorry, Charlie Smith, he was born Larkin McLeod. He was born in Vicksburg, Mississippi. His family had uh, moved to uh, Ottawa, Kansas in the 1890s. Larkin himself was born back in uh, 1887. And his family moved to Kansas in the 1890s. He, uh, He was one of five siblings. And his family was... A working-class family. His father was a laborer. His mother was a homekeeper, a housekeeper. Uh, and when he was 16, Larkin ran off to join the circus. Well, he's a wrestler, and he wanted to follow his passion and make some money, and he did it for 15 years. That circus went through Iowa. It, it was called the Yankee Robinson Circus. It was the first massive professional circus in the United States. It predated the Ringling Circus, which later actually bought the Yankee Robinson Circus. 
But, you know, they had 30 railroad cars, extra long railroad cars, filled with animals and performers of all kinds. And in the midst of all that, Larkin McLeod, a.k.a. Charlie Cannonball Thunderbolt Smith, was in with the circus. But he got off the train in Omaha. He walked up, got up to Florence, went up the railroad tracks there. He's walking along and uh, noticed a farmhouse off on the west side of the tracks. And he decided to go up to the farmhouse and get a drink of water. He knocked on the front door and nobody answered. So he went over to the well, lifted up the bucket, took some water, got back on the tracks, saw an apple orchard across the way, went and picked a couple of apples. There were a lot of apple orchards there in Ponca Hills back in the days. 1917. He sat down underneath these trees and he saw a couple of men carrying a long object covered with fabric. Covered with a tarp. One person had one end of it. The other one had the other end of it. And they were carrying it along. And they dumped it over by a tree. He saw another man take a handful of stuff and throw it around. And then all three of them left. Well, this Larkin, McLeod, was curious about what he saw. Kind of looked like a body. And he walked over to the tree. It was up a little hill. Walked over to the tree. He walked over to the tarp. He lifted the tarp, saw a woman. She was a pretty woman, but it was a mess. It was a bad scene, man. Her hands were bound with a piece of fabric. Her clothes were ripped. She had a terrible cut on her neck. And gashes on her body. Larkin dropped the cloth, turned and headed up the tracks. Saw a train come along, hopped on the train. Later that day, the police in Blair picked up Larkin and arrested him for murder. Now, at the same time that Larkin was getting arrested... A mob was gathering because they knew that this man was getting caught. And this mob was farmers from all over Washington County, from all over North Douglas County, from Florence, from Ponca, from Blair. And this mob had two or three hundred men, and they saw that cop car load up Larkin. And they gathered around that car and started rattling the cage. They followed the cop car into Blair where Larkin was held at the police station. They started rattling the doors. The cops guarded him, put Larkin on a train. The mob followed the train. They wanted to lynch Larkin McLeod. He was an African-American man. It was 1917. You see, Steve, the 1917s, the 19-teens in Omaha were pretty tense time, like you said in the opening. The African-American population in Omaha had doubled in size. All across the United States, there was a lot of racial strife, and Omaha was not missing it. It was going on all over the place. Jim Crow rules had set in all over Omaha, all across Nebraska. White people did not want black people to live near them. They felt economically threatened. 
by the ability of African-American laborers to make a living. They were scared. It was a scary time, but they were hateful. And many were ready to take action that was violent. Like this mob that gathered around Larkin McLeod when he was arrested. Like this mob that followed the train out of town. Like this mob that followed the train all the way from Blair to Omaha. Like they were on the city edges. The Omaha police met the train there and escorted it downtown. That mob broke up. Interesting thing about that mob. We're going to come back around to it later. But, uh, yeah, the guy who accused Larkin McLeod of the murder was actually leading the mob. Because that guy was none other than the husband of the woman who was killed. Steve, I need to introduce Claude Nethaway. Claude Leroy Nethaway. He was born in upstate New York and had come to Nebraska, moved to Norfolk in the 1890s. Then he moved to the Ponca Hills. He ran the Forgot store in the 1910s, and he started a real estate agency, a real estate firm. He was going to sell land in Florence. Printed up business cards, and on that business card, he used racism to sell real estate, Steve, because he said plainly on his business cards, I do not sell property to African Americans, Asian Americans, or Native Americans, except he didn't refer to any of those three people, three groups of humans, by those names. Instead, he used racial epithets. It was mean. It was nasty. And he did it all the time. You know, the movie Birth of a Nation had opened in Omaha in 1916. It was the first long-form movie in the history of the world. The first time that you got a chance to sit and watch something. But go figure. The movie wasn't just a sweet story of anything. It wasn't that at all. Instead, it was the racist history of America as denoted by the KKK. The whole point of the movie was to raise the numbers of the KKK. And uh, it was the tone, that tone, that Claude Nethaway was appealing to in his real estate sales it was that tone that Claude Nethaway was appealing to when he gathered that mob in Blair. It was that tone when he accused Larkin McLeod of killing his wife. You see, Claude Nethaway, he was supposed to meet his wife on the bridge. Now, his story changed a couple times after Larkin McLeod was arrested. Larkin McLeod first had a coroner's inquiry it's like a trial, but it's a trial to find out if you need to have a trial, basically. He first had that in August of 1917. And Claude Nethaway told this story about how he was supposed to meet his wife for lunch on the bridge on McKinley. And when his wife didn't show up, he went ahead and went to his office in Florence. Now, his wife was supposed to be at home. Home was less than a half mile he had his car, supposedly. But when she didn't show up, he didn't go home. He went back to his office. And there he changed up. Then he got concerned, so he went home. And according to his story, Claude Nethaway, when he got home, he found his wife's body right away, a 100 yards from their house, up on this little embankment above the railroad tracks. 
He went and got his neighbor who lived just to the north of him. There was a little lookout shack that this neighbor, he was an operator for the railroad. And uh, the neighbor in Claude Nethaway, Nethaway grabbed the neighbor and said, let's go look for the body. And they got down on the railroad tracks. And then Claude Nethaway ran up this embankment. And voila, there was his wife's body in this grotesque state. Hmm. And Nethaway, in that first coroner's inquisition, said that he told his neighbor, go call the police. And he started screaming and wailing and gnashing. And the police showed up. Police showed up and put on an APB. And that's when the Blair police went and got Larkin McLeod. From the beginning, from the time that Larkin McLeod was arrested, he attested to his innocence. He didn't do it. He didn't know what happened. But regardless, this this semi-pro wrestler who left the circus in Omaha was suddenly inspected and implicated in the murder of this woman by a white supremacist. You know, McLeod was brought to uh, the jails at the top of the Douglas County Courthouse, the same jails where two years later Will Brown was taken from before he was lynched. But this time the police formed a large cadre outside of the courthouse to protect McLeod. When the trials were held, police security was tight. That coroner's inquiry actually found that McClure likely hadn't committed the crime, but they wanted him held over for a full trial. The jury suggested that. And so in February of 1918... I'm sorry, in November of 1918. In November of 1917, Larkin McLeod faced murder charges in the Douglas County courthouses for a trial with a jury. And over the course of the week of the jury impanelment, a case was drawn against McLeod. All the evidence was shared. They placed him at the scene. They placed the weapon in his hand. Other things were said about him to paint him out to be a vicious murderer. However, there was no firm evidence. Everything was circumstantial, Steve. McLeod's lawyers got up and said that the jury was being asked to guess away the life of this man. And directly said there was no material evidence connecting Smith to the crime in any way. It was so bad that one of McLeod's own lawyers, a white man, got up and said, Charles Smith, if I believe that your black hands were stained with the blood of this woman, I would myself demand you die for it. But he didn't believe it. And in closing arguments, McLeod's lawyers said that Nethaway's actions showed a guilty knowledge, either as a principal or accessory to the murder. You see, from his testimony, the court learned that Claude Nethaway hadn't gone to his sister's house, to his wife's sister's house where she said she would be after lunch. Instead, he went to pick her up at another sister's house instead. You see, we found out that Nellie Nethaway, who was murdered, was 45 minutes late meeting Claude Nethaway 
but he didn't show any apprehension about her being late. We found out that there were tracks of two people leading into the cornfield behind Nethaway's house where Nellie's body was found. Not one, but two. We found out that the killer didn't sexually assault Nellie Nethaway or rob her of anything. Larkin McLeod didn't have a motive for the murder. We found out that Nethaway's search for his wife led almost exactly to where he found her body, like he didn't look any further. Oh, look, here it is. And we found out that Nethaway said there was foul play before his wife's body was found. How did he know? All kinds of shady, suspicious stuff comes up. Lots of inconsistencies came out. The jury came back and said, all right, we, uh, we're going to go ahead and say uh, Larkin McLeod, well, we're, we're going to say we can't come into a decision. See, nine people on the jury thought that he was innocent, three thought that he was guilty, and nobody changed their votes after more than ten votes on the jury. So it was a hung jury on the first trial in November 1917. The Omaha Monitor... This was a black newspaper for the black community founded by an African-American minister, uh, Reverend Dr. John Albert Williams, who led St. Philip's Episcopal Congregation there in North Omaha. He also published a newspaper called The Monitor. And in The Monitor, he wrote that uh, black people in Omaha were fortunate they hadn't been accused of other murders that had been happening in the city in recent years. And then directly he wrote, we say fortunately, advisedly. Because while crime shouldn't re be regarded as crime by whosoever – I messed that up, Steve. Reverend John Albert Williams wrote, We say fortunately, advisedly, because while crime should be regarded as crime by whosoever committed and punished accordingly by some strange psychological process – the average white Omahan seems to arrive at the conclusion that a crime committed by a colored man is more heinous than the same crime committed by a white man. And more so over, there is also this striking phenomenon that while a white man's crime is attributed to him and him alone and is regarded as an act of individual, the crime of a black man seems to be regarded as a corporate act and a reflection upon the whole race to which he belongs. Reverend Williams wasn't having it. Oh, also, Reverend Williams made the note that Larkin McLeod wasn't from Omaha. And African Americans in the city couldn't necessarily attest for him. But alas, Reverend Williams also led a campaign to start a fund to make sure that Larkin McLeod had an African American lawyer for the next trial. Right in the monitor, they raised money for the case right then. Larkin McLeod's mother in Lawrence, Kansas, wrote a letter to attest to her son's character. She said, my son's not an outcast. Her name was Betty McLeod. She was born in 1865. She said, he had a good home and he went away last April for work. And I didn't hear of him after that until I heard of this. He went to work in order to get more wages so he might help his father and I more. We haven't heard anything financial. Uh, we, we haven't anything financial. My husband is old and getting frail and spend everything we have trying to save my eyesight. So here's Charles Smith, Larkin McLeod, held over for his next trial. In the second trial, that one happened in uh, February of 1917. 
1918. We learned a lot more. We learned that the Douglas County Sheriff, see, this happened out in the country, right? Uh, but the Douglas County Sheriff didn't have a detective department, and so the Omaha Police Department did the detective work. Well, the Douglas County Sheriff didn't like the detective work that they did on McLeod's case, and the Douglas County Sheriff himself attested to Larkin's innocence. A neighbor in the in this next trial, it was revealed that a neighbor testified to seeing McLeod go to the Nethaway house for water at the point in time when Nellie Nethaway was murdered, but then he returned. And why would he return to the scene of a crime or leave when nobody answered the door? Again, McLeod didn't seem to really have any reason to do this. County de- deputies found no evidence that Nellie Nethaway was dragged from the tracks to where her body was found at the top of the little embankment. How could McLeod? He only weighed 147 pounds. How could he carry her up the steep slope? Mrs. Nethaway had walked voluntarily to her spot by another route, but why? Why would she walk out to this tree on top of this hill? She hadn't been raped or robbed. There was a hunting knife that was found that was originally attached to McLeod. There was a whole big series of stories put in the newspapers about how you use this. He stole the hunting knife and then used it to murder. But the coroner's inquiry found that the cut was made by a sharper blade. A razor was found buried nearby the Nethaway house away from the body. Oh, and the piece of uh, cloth that was used to tie up Mrs. Nethaway's wrists. Yeah, it had been cut with scissors from other clothing that Mrs. Nethaway wasn't wearing. The scissors were found on top of Claude Nethaway's dresser. At the end of that first trial in November, the monitor wrote that uh, no jury of fair-minded and sane men would convict the accused on the evidence introduced. The prevailing sentiment was that the jury would not be long at arriving the verdict of not guilty, but we know they were hung instead. Well, when this new trial happened, the third trial, right? The first was the coroner's inquiry. The second was the first trial that was hung when this next trial happened. More interesting details ended up coming out. You see, apparently, according to Claude Nethaway's story, Nellie Nethaway walked a half mile on terrible railroad tracks to meet Claude at the bridge when it would have only taken him another five minutes to drive from his office to his house to pick her up. So that seemed a little bit incongruous. A neighbor testified that she saw Claude earlier that day wearing dark clothes. When she saw him again in the afternoon, he was wearing light-colored clothes. The third interesting thing that came out in this trial was that McLeod didn't have any human blood on his body or his clothes. But Claude Nethway did. Yeah, it turns out that a doctor watched him undress at the end of that day, and the doctor testified to seeing blood on Claude Nethaway's shirt, on his tie, on his lapel. Well, all of this was spilling during the trial. And at the end of the second trial, one of uh, McLeod's attorneys said, we've been criticized for casting aspersions on the husband of the dead woman by innuendo insinuating that he might have been guilty. There is a mystery in this case that will not be cleared up by the conviction of Charles Smith. If the evidence adduced uh, in this case had seemed to point to any person, no matter who, it's not our fault, but it's the trend of the evidence. So basically, he was saying that the case was so tight that there was no way that Charles Smith could have done it. But at the same time, that lawyer made it sound like it was inevitable 
that Charles Smith was going to be found guilty. And lo and behold, he was. On February 4th, 1918, Larkin McLeod was found guilty of murdering Nellie Nethway. He was sentenced to life in prison. Now, take a note that uh, the prosecutors wanted to have him put to death. The jury sentenced him to life in prison because they weren't entirely all in favor of this verdict. But according to the monitor, when the verdict was delivered, Larkin McLeod collapsed in a fit of hysterical screaming, and it took the efforts of four deputies to remove him from the courtroom. The prisoner threw himself on the floor, cried out, beat the floor with his feet, and finally collapsed in semi-consciousness, in which condition he was returned to his cell. The whole trial, and the trial before, and the inquiry before, the newspapers painted Larkin McLeod as a stoic, who didn't show any emotion, who maintained his innocence no matter what. But suddenly, when he heard his fate... He screamed and yelled and fell into a stupor. Well, Monitor also took note at the end of that trial, the last trial, that despite the jury's verdict, the Omaha public is by no means satisfied of Smith's guilt. The sentiment, the sentiment sets the other way. Steve, it was yucky after that trial. Omaha was a disgusting place for a long time. For many reasons. In a jailhouse interview after the trial, you know, McLeod, he was sent up to the Nebraska State Penitentiary in Lincoln. The monitor went and interviewed him. McLeod, well, he didn't do so well. Racial tension kept growing up in Omaha and getting bigger while McLeod sat in prison. Two years after the murder of Nellie Nethaway, there was a mob that gathered in downtown Omaha in September of 1919. This mob took another African-American man, a man named Will Brown, from the same jails that Claude Nethaway, or that Claude Nethaway avoided, the same jails that Larkin McLeod was locked up in. This mob took him from there. This mob lynched him dismembered his body, burnt his corpse, dragged it through the streets of Omaha, sold particles of his clothing and the lynching rope as souvenirs. This mob had leaders. Yeah, nobody was ever convicted in it. But uh, one man, two men went to trial, and one of them was Claude Nethaway. Now, that was 1919. It was just a year later. See, it turned out that Claude got married in 1918. Her name was Stella Hazel Bump. Great name, huh? Stella Hazel Bump. Ms. Bump. They were married in 1920, but just... Oh, I'm sorry, they were married in 1918, but just two years later in 1920, Stella sought a divorce, saying that her husband was excitable, nervous, and spent most of his time at home talking about the, quote, Negro question and railing against, quote, Negro lovers. She also testified that he terrorized her and held a knife on her more than once. She won the case. She left Claude Nethaway. She went back to her native Chicago. Nethaway sent lewd cards to her through the mail. He actually ended up getting fined by the Postal Service for sending that content, but he also sent letters to her employer and got her fired, attesting to how frivolous she was with her sexuality. That was 1920. 
Nethaway was put on trial that year for the lynching of Will Brown. He got away with it. He kept running his real estate company. He ended up getting married the third time in 1924. He ran for legislature in 1932. He died in 1937. For decades after the murder, the bridge on McKinley Street, where Nellie Nethaway was supposed to meet her husband, was called the Nethaway Bridge. That bridge is gone now. You can't. It's hard to find. It's above the old south cut of the Omaha Road. Claude Nethaway's office on North 30th Street is gone now. You can't find that necessarily either. But his family's graves are in Blair. They're the only sites that still commemorate their lives, including Nellie, who was murdered. Larkin McLeod, he died in 1928 in the Nebraska State Penitentiary in Lincoln. There's a marker there for him. It's white. It's got his name chiseled into it. It's pretty crude. But you can see it for yourself. It's Mark Charles Smith. His nom de plure. And for a long time, Steve, this case was entirely forgotten by Omaha history. But because of North Omaha history and this podcast, we can share it with the world and raise the flag that this incidence of white supremacy, this incidence of framing a black man for a murder that he didn't commit, this incident won't be forgotten from our city's history. And this is the case of Larkin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the North Omaha History Podcast with noted author and historian Adam Fletcher Sassy. Join us next week as Adam takes you on another guided tour through Omaha's dynamic past.